0: Father God, we thank you this morning for drawing your people into local congregations across the world to give you praise. We pray that the pure and undiluted gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, would be boldly proclaimed as the solution to the problem of sin in our own lives and the world around us. We pray that you would bring our lives into submission to your word this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. This is what we need more than anything else. And this is what we pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world as well. We pray this morning specifically for Temple Philadelphia in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, and our friend Marcel Yonogo. We pray as he or one of the other pastors in his church preach your word, that you would find hearts ready to receive its truth. We also pray for our brother Jared Garcia and his family as they prepare to go to the Philippines. We give you praise for a successful fundraising tour on the East Coast, and we thank you that he will be back in the Pacific Northwest soon for his short residency at Hinson Baptist. We pray that in whatever church he finds himself this morning preaching your word, that you would empower him and help him to explain the gospel clearly. We pray closer to home this morning for Salem Heights and the pastors and elders there. We ask that you would unify them in their leadership of your church to bring about the obedience of the faith based on your lordship through your word. And we also pray this morning, Lord, at your command for leaders and all who are in high positions. We pray for the leaders of our nation. We are in in great need for men and women of integrity in this country, Lord. And we freely admit to you that there are many who are blatantly walking against your truth and wisdom. We pray that you might sustain those who are yours in the midst of government and give them increasing authority. And we pray for conviction for those who are not yours, that their hearts might be conquered by the truth of your gospel and the power of your word. Let your will be done in our nation, Lord. We pray finally for ourselves, Lord, As the summer has begun and the great exodus happens in most churches to fun and vacation, especially after multiple years of travel restrictions, we pray that you would still keep us united and unified in the mission to build up disciples of Jesus Christ by preaching, teaching, and sending. We pray that you would help us to keep our hearts and minds focused upon the priority of your glory in our lives, wherever we find ourselves this summer. And we ask that you would do that now through the ministry of your word. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen can have a seat and open your Bibles to Psalm 16. We will be covering Psalm 16 and 17 this morning. The very first time that I traveled to West Africa for ministry was with a group from my previous church to go and lead a children's Bible camp. A few other folks were with me, Samantha Norton, Patrick Schneider, uh, and some other folks uh, from our old church. It was a wonderful and stretching time of teaching and playing games and hanging out with the kids. But one of the most impactful events occurred on the last day of the camp, impactful for me, that is. A wonderful older couple from our church wanted to help serve the kids, and so as loving and doting grandparents, they thought it would be fun to send over some lollipops for the children. I thought it was a great idea as well, and so I gladly agreed to transport the boxes of lollipops. The last day of the camp came, and I was excited to hand them out, thinking they would be a much appreciated treat for children in the midst of poverty who rarely get treats like that. Now, there were women who were faithfully serving the camp by cooking for them, and on this particular day, the camp had saved the best for last Uh, and they were distributing bowls full of beef and rice, and these looked good. But that's all that was in them was beef and rice. Now these two dishes are far more expensive and therefore less available. And so as they handed the bowls of food out, we went along with them and we handed out lollipops. Now the most amazing thing happened, amazing to me as an American. We saw two different reactions. For some of the children, they immediately unwrapped the candy and were enthralled by the sugary hit. That's what I kind of expected to happen. But for the vast majority of them, they actually took one look at it, maybe even unwrapped it and tried it, tasted it, but then they put it aside. And this was because sitting in front of them was some of the most wholesome, filling, fulfill, fulfilling, tasty food they could imagine. In that moment, I observed two very different paths of satisfaction. And I'll leave it to you to determine whether one or the other in that situation was the better path. (laughs) Now, in our psalms this morning, David is writing two separate psalms, but there is a thread that connects them that is similar to this idea. In both psalms, we will deal with this same idea of satisfaction. In Psalm 16, David will introduce to us the two paths, but will predominantly lay out what godly satisfaction looks like, what I am calling satisfaction for the righteous this morning. And in so doing, he will illustrate and describe for us what the heart that is wholly turned to the Lord looks like. In this, we will see a prophetic, messianic psalm of the one true and pure human that actually does this, turns his heart completely to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Then in Psalm 17, we will again hear an introductory statement of the two paths, but then we will be given details around what satisfaction for the wicked looks like. And David will lay out for us what the world is satisfied in, And I think at the beginning it will make sense, but as we go through the psalm, it will be a bit of a shock for us because what we will find is that rather than straight evil, undiluted evil, what we will see is that often satisfaction for the world and for the wicked is simply things that most of us would classify as good that then become idols. Now, because conviction will most likely then come for us in the midst of these two psalms, We will finish by looking at David's own heart cry that God might provide the refuge and rescue that he needs. His cry in this particular Psalm was from physical enemies, but we will be able to much more readily apply it to rescue from the enemy, Satan himself, and the enemy within, as our sinful nature seeks to be satisfied with anything other than Christ. Well, let's begin our unpacking of the text in the sermon this morning, which I have entitled, Two Contrasting Paths of Satisfaction. Two Contrasting Paths of Satisfaction. We've already heard Psalm 17, so let's now read together as a community in Psalm 16. Would you read with me this morning? And we're gonna be primarily reading out of the ESV, and so if you have a different translation, you will notice some differences. But let's read together, starting in verse 1 with Preserve Me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply, This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we see this morning in both Psalms is an introduction to the two paths. And we'll see this at the beginning of both Psalms. Now, the context, the immediate context for David in both these Psalms is a bit different. Psalm 16 is a confident reflection on finding rest in God, a confident reflection on finding rest in God. Psalm 17 is different in that it's a pleading prayer for deliverance from the attack of the enemies a the theme that we've already seen in great detail in the first portion of the psalms. But even though they are different psalms in their immediate situational context, they overlap and complement each other in multiple ways, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. The first similarity is that they both pull from the imagery of Psalm 1. A couple of weeks ago, Ryan reminded us that as we read these psalms, we should have this psalm, Psalm 1, on our minds as background to the rest of the psalms, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And this is true here as well. Between the two Psalms, David paints the picture of two paths, one of righteousness and one of wickedness. Now, David uses imagery of what they are pursuing and worshiping and a summary statement of that in which each finds satisfaction. Two different paths of satisfaction. First, we see what the righteous are pursuing. In Psalm 16, it is clear that David is pursuing and finding good in Yahweh alone. Remember when we see the all capitals, L-O-R-D, Lord, behind that in the Hebrew is the name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so he's finding good in Yahweh alone, and all other good flows from that. He is clear that when times get tough and he needs protection and endurance, it is to Yahweh that he will turn. He declares to Yahweh that he is both the authority and provider in David's life. That is what it means to be Lord. When we confess Jesus as Lord, We're not just saying savior, we are saying that, but we're also saying that he is also the authority and the provider in our lives, the master of us as his bondservants. But he trusts his master because he realizes that there is no good apart from him. And this is what the saints in the land do. They find their good in Yahweh and Yahweh finds his delight in them, the holy ones who seek after the Lord. Psalm 17 comes at the same idea from a different angle. Here, David is crying out for vindication and justice because he has been wronged by the wicked, but the underlying truth is the same. He is pursuing Yahweh because he knows that the goodness of justice will only come from him. He can't take it on himself. The understanding of the first five verses of Psalm 17 has to almost be reverse engineered a bit. Take a look at verse five. My steps have held fast to your paths, my feet have not slipped. Now, this is a statement that seems to us of self righteousness, but it's really David saying, I have had to cling on to you. He points out here that he's held fast to the path of the Lord, the path of righteousness. And one verse up from that, verse 4, shows that he stayed the course. He says, "...with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, by God's word, by following and clinging to his law," notice what he says, "...I have avoided the ways of the violent." He stayed the course, stayed on the path of righteousness, by clinging to the word of God, the words of God's lips, to avoid the ways of the violent. And because of this, he has confidence that the Lord can test his heart and find no evil." This is an application of Psalm 1. Psalm 1.1 through uh, verse 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight. He finds satisfaction in what? The law of the Lord. And on his law, therefore, he meditates day and night. He delights in, he finds satisfaction in the words of God. From the Lord's hand has come the perfect good, the perfect grace, the perfect wisdom in which David has stood and so he can now be confident that the God, that God will bring the good of vindication and refuge to him as well. Verse 7 even reiterates this by calling Yahweh, notice it says, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Where does David hide when things are troublesome, when people wanna take his life? He runs and hides at the right hand of God, like a child who nestles into their parent in order to be safe. This pursuit and worship of the Lord above all else is at the core of David's satisfaction and satisfaction for the righteous. And in Psalm 16, it is now contrasted with the introduction of what is behind the satisfaction of the wicked. Take a look at 16.4 with me again, 16.4, it says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. In comparison to the saints who desire and pursue Yahweh as the only God, the one Lord, in whom they can find refuge and good, we now see a statement in contrast to that of the wicked. They will run after another God. And because of this, their sorrows will multiply. The Hebrews behind this statement is more the Hebrew behind this statement is more picturesque. It shows pagans who are worshiping and pursuing idols. Now David pictures this pursuit in detail as he says that he will not be part of what they're doing, their sacrificial worship, where they drain the blood of sacrificial animals and pour it out as what's called an oblation or a a drink offering to the false God. You can imagine them taking the blood in a chalice and pouring it out on the ground and saying, God, that's for you. He will also not take part in the worship by pronouncing the names of these satanic false gods on his lips. He won't even say them. This is describing idolatrous worship. Now, if we know our Bible, we could pause for a minute and say, wait a minute, isn't that how Israel worshiped too? Didn't they do drink offerings? Didn't they proclaim God's name in worship? Didn't they take the blood of the sacrifice? But we looked at this and we realized that there's one major difference between the pagans and the Jews. For the pagans, the pagan nations, they did these things to manipulate God. They believed God served them, and so they did these things to manipulate For Israel, they did it differently. They did it as a reminder of the fact that they were in debt to Yahweh and his grace. Take, for example, the use of blood. For the pagans, they would pour it out as if satiating this thirsty God, and so God would be in their debt to do as they please. But for Israel, their God had no need of drink or violence. And so they were to place the blood on the horns of the altar. Horns are an ancient symbol of authority. It was their way of reminding themselves that they had sinned against Yahweh, they were in debt to Yahweh, and he had graciously entered into covenant regardless of this fact. And so therefore they are under his power, under his authority, and not the other way around. And so we might say, oh, yeah, cultic worship practices here and cultic worship practices there, but they're two very different things. Just like, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the prayers of one person who calls themselves a Christian can be totally different from the prayers of another. If prayers are meant to manipulate God so he serves me, that is a pagan prayer. If prayers are meant to worship God and to come under submission to him so that he might change our hearts, that's a Christian prayer. It's a difference, a distinction between the two. And this very clear distinction between how the pagans approach their false gods and how Israel approaches the one true God will become a bit more clear as we go. But we now have an understanding of the introduction of these two paths. They speak to where we find satisfaction and to whom our lips give worship and praise. And so now as we read through the rest of these psalms, I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, how integrated Is the Lord, in your view, of goodness and refuge, can you say, as David does, I have no good apart from you? Can you say, as David does, that it is to the Lord you turn when things aren't going well and you need refuge and protection? Or do we find good in many other things without the Lord at all? Do we turn to other things when we want to be rescued from our present distress, entertainment, escape, alcohol, drugs, sex, fun? What do we turn to when we need refuge? Perhaps the simplest question to encapsulate all of these that we need to ponder as we continue going through this is, where do you seek satisfaction or fulfillment? Where do I seek satisfaction or fulfillment? So let's hold this question in our mind as we continue to unpack both satisfaction for the righteous and satisfaction for the wicked. First, let's look at satisfaction for the righteous. Would you read with me again these two small sections, 16, 5 through 11 and 17, 15. 16, 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And at the end of chapter 17, Psalm 17, it says in verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David makes it abundantly clear. The righteous man or woman finds their satisfaction in Yahweh. And the starting point for this satisfaction is the heart stance of the righteous that we discussed a bit earlier. The wicked pagan heart that is in rebellion against God will assume an entitled position. God owes me something that I deserve. Friends, that's what our flesh innately goes to. God owes me something I deserve. If you didn't write that down, write it down. Because that's the state of our heart when we wake up in the morning. God owes me something. That I deserve. Brothers and sisters, is this not where all of our rebellion originates? The core depravity of our heart lies in this depraved view of what we deserve. In the Garden of Eden, rather than rejoice and give thanks for the amazingly gracious bounty that they had been given, Eve was tempted by Satan to believe the lie that she deserved more. She deserved God's level of fulfillment and contentment. But friends, this is an impossibility for the created being, for the creature. For only the creator has the characteristic of what's called aseity. Everybody say aseity. Aseity. a-seity. It's a fancy theological term, but before you just brush it away thinking you don't need theology, this is core to the God you serve. This is part of his being. It is the characteristic of being completely self derived and therefore self fulfilled. He needs nothing. And so, any idea that God needed to create us for his own satisfaction, or he needed to create us for worship, or he needed to create us so that he had something to love, that's false. He needed nothing. And yet, out of the overflow of his grace, creation came. As created creatures then, we depend on him because this is not us, amen? Are we self-derived? No. Are we self-fulfilled? No. I mean, just go talk with any child who's had five minutes on their own in this culture and what do they say? I'm bored. Well, replace child with adult. Any child or adult, (laughs) right? I'm bored. We need something to fulfill us. We're always looking outside. And so we depend on the one with city to give us what will fulfill us, food, drink, fun, entertainment, relationships. To understand differently, to pursue otherwise, will leave us in constant sorrow. We will be chasing all these things to bring us this God-like fulfillment and satisfaction, but it can never happen because we don't have city. We do not have the ability to experience it, the self-fulfillment, the satisfaction as the creator God does. Our being is built and meant to find satisfaction where? In God. And therefore, from that satisfaction flows the enjoyment of all these other things that can be good. Food and drink and relationships and fun and entertainment. But there is an order that has to be there. And so there is a need to be completely reliant upon the creator and the provider for fulfillment. We must realize this need and lean into it and give thanks for it. Friends, this is the entire story of his people starting with Israel throughout the Torah, the first five books. It is clear that Yahweh is the provider and without him there is no good, no good at all for the chosen people. And when they are freed from Egypt in grace and given a land to prosper in by grace, God makes sure to remind them that it was not required of him to do so. It was out of his grace. You can think of the assignment of the inheritance in the land, for example. Recall this from our study in Joshua at the end of Joshua 24, verses 13 and 14. Notice what he says. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Did they deserve any of this? Actually, not at all. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. The inheritance that they had been given was not theirs by right, but it was given by the creator as a gift. It wasn't their land to begin with. Yet God gave it to them. Friends, What have you been given in your life that you actually deserve? Breath? Life? Friendship? Health? Any measure of health whatsoever? A paycheck? A home? The material possessions you have? How about salvation? Do we deserve any of it? The answer is no. It's all grace, it's all grace. And this is the heart of the righteous, to understand this, to stand in it, and to give thanks for it. Now here in Psalm 16, David combines this background imagery of the land of inheritance with the metaphor he just finished using of the, the cup of oblation that the pagans pour out to false idols. He uses both these images of inheritance and worship The transition into his satisfaction and the satisfaction of all the righteous. David has gone beyond the practical blessing that is found in good food and drink or good land inheritance. He goes beyond that to realize that all the land was, was for a place in which God reigned over his people. It was to become a new and better garden of Eden, where heaven and earth met together and man dwelt with Yahweh in relationship. And David realized that this is the ultimate good of the righteous. Yahweh, it says, the Lord is their chosen portion. Yahweh is their their cup. Yahweh is the one who casts lots for their circumstances. Yahweh is the beautiful inheritance above anything this world could offer. And so... David, along with the righteous, gives praise to Yahweh. I will bless Yahweh, he says. He is the one to whom the righteous therefore turn for counsel. He's the one who is always near at the place of protection, pictured here at his right hand. And because of this, the righteous shall not be shaken when trouble comes. David has found the truth that we were created to understand. As the creature, we have no good apart from our creator. And all that we are given is grace. Man, when that kicks in, does it not change your heart from bemoaning your circumstances to thankfulness? There is nothing to which we are entitled, all is to be received with thanksgiving. When we are not content with God's providence in our lives, we must realize it's because we believe the lie that Satan has told our first mother and continues to tell us. You deserve better. But why? And who says? I saw an advertisement on a billboard recently for a skin product. And their tagline was, get the skin that you deserve. Deserve? What does that even mean? <laughs> like seriously, think through that with me. What does that even mean? What on earth did you do to deserve better skin? And what skin is better, <laughs> right? Like, it's just weird, but that is everywhere. Get the care that you deserve. Get the product that you deserve. Get the new, better spouse that you deserve, because the old one, nah. It's amazing. Pretty soon, when they get a few steps ahead in all this work with with building up kids in Petri dishes, you're going to have get the child that you deserve. I guarantee it will be there in the next 25 years on some billboard. Get the child that you deserve, because you're just such a gosh darn good parent right? What does this even mean? But that's how far this sense of entitlement has grown in humanity, especially in America. Being made in the image of God used to mean that we were to fear God, an attempt to reflect him to the world, understanding our place as his created beings who owed him glory and praise. Now to be made in the image of God means we are in the place of God, waiting for all the cosmos, including the creator himself, to bow to our needs and serve us because of our innate value and worth. Friends, we have no good apart from God. He is our portion and cup. He holds our lot Everything he gives us is grace. We are entitled to and deserve nothing but his wrath. So praise God that his Holy Spirit, by his word, has revealed this to us in truth, this truth that is so contrary to the natural state of our hearts. Friends, think about yesterday. If you're anything like me, you could name at least a dozen times where you felt like you deserved better, right? Anybody else in here? You look back at yesterday, forget the last 44 years of my life, yesterday I did this. And so praise God that his word speaks to us of the truth so that we can tell that lie within us to go away. We can now turn to join the psalmist in declaring the next portion. Look again at verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. When we take on this heart stance, we find ourselves not in discontent or in sorrow, but in gladness and rejoicing in security. For insecurity comes as we wrestle for control and wonder why the things to which we are entitled have not been given to us. But a realistic understanding of our place as God's creation leads to rejoicing in our circumstances. No matter the case before us, we will find that we trust God regardless of the suffering that comes. And so we can set the Lord as our guide, our wisdom and our protector. I watched it in that same kid's camp. You see, these kids were used to playing soccer soccer with literally a wadded up cardboard box that had been made into a ball-like structure. And nobody cared, they just played together and had fun with it. The second we brought our American greed with us and said, oh, you guys deserve good soccer balls, guess what happened? All of a sudden, the kid who had it was greedy with it. I have to control it now, I have to hold on to it. And when he lost it, what came but sorrow? No longer was there the joy of the game, but now he had to hold on to his world that he had created. This is what we do with anything in life. Instead, when we have the heart of the righteous, we end up setting the Lord as our guide, our wisdom, and our protector. And why can we trust him? Why can we give our lives to him in this way where both good and bad can be things we're thankful for? Well, David tells us next in 10 and 11, read those again with me, "'For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol "'or let your Holy One see corruption. "'You make known to me the path of life. "'In your presence there is fullness of joy.'" At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For David, in his immediate context, he had trust that whatever he was facing in that moment, God would overcome, that he wouldn't die in that circumstance. But obviously, David did not think he would be immortal. So what is he saying here? He won't let your Holy One see corruption. Well, in the New Testament, we're given the answer to that question. Would you turn there with me? to our, first, uh, our second reading this morning, Acts 13. Acts 13, starting in verse 26. We'll read it again. It says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And obviously he's talking here about Jesus the Christ. And though they found, him, uh, found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news. The word there is gospel, evangelion, That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, the psalm that we're reading today, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, meaning died. He fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and he did see corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." What he's speaking of there is the fact that we can have as many laws telling us to find our satisfaction in Christ as we want. I could preach, guys, find your satisfaction in Christ, hurry up, do it, do better, do better, do better, and you'll wake up tomorrow morning, and will you be able to follow that law without God? No, and so there is no good apart from God. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked and we want to find satisfaction in something else. But with the Lord, with his gospel, with his spirit, praise God, he changes our hearts to find satisfaction where? In Christ. If we cling to those paths of righteousness, if we cling to his word, if we cling to the gospel, if we constantly, moment by moment, day by day, realign our hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the one in whom we find satisfaction. Without knowing it, at the time, David was prophesying of the Messiah to come. That's why Psalm 16 is called a messianic prophecy, a messianic psalm. The one that would sit on the throne and rule over God's people forever, Jesus, this Christ would be the one that would sit at the right hand of the creator God as pictured in the book of Daniel. And it is him who would not see corruption. It is through him, this Messiah, that David finds fullness of joy. And so do we, so do we excuse me, <clears throat> Through his death in our place, for our rebellion, and through his resurrection and his victory over the death that we brought into this world, we find forgiveness of our sins in Christ. And that is why we can be assured that at his right hand, we will find the pleasure and satisfaction that we are looking for. But let's understand even deeper what Christ's sacrificial work did for us. His death on the cross paid the penalty of sin for us, yes. His resurrection defeated the kingdom of darkness in which we once resided, yes. But even further, his enthronement over us and his pouring out of his spirit into our hearts woke us up from the dead, resurrected us, enlivened us. And it awoke our hearts to the truth that we are innately idolatrous rebels living in constant entitlement before God, attempting in our feeble manner to hold him accountable to our Sovereign will. And because of this, we deserve his wrath, his judgment, and eternal punishment. For those who are spiritually dead do not repent in this life or the afterlife, but they continue in hard-hearted rebellion against God, holding him accountable to their will. But this is foolishness. Only with the grace that is given by God will our hearts be able to turn in repentance from those things in which we once found our satisfaction aside from God. Only with grace can we now walk in the path of the righteous that David outlines existing in God's presence in which we find our ultimate joy. It is in knowing and pursuing and worshiping Christ that we can proclaim what David proclaims at the end of Psalm 17. Would you turn back there with me? It is only in knowing Christ that we can proclaim this that I shall behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Church, the ironic blessing that we sing to close our gatherings each week is for the Lord to bless us with his face shining upon us, to see his likeness. In Christ, that blessing is fulfilled as we see Yahweh's face in righteousness in Christ. And so in the salvation of Jesus... In the gospel that we proclaim every Sunday and every day of our lives, we can declare that we have been given the likeness of the creator, the likeness of the Father God in Christ, and we are having our hearts turned to be satisfied in him. Friends, can you declare this morning that your satisfaction is found in Christ and in Christ alone? Are you satisfied in what he has providentially done in your life as your king? Are you satisfied with the glimpse of his face that you see in his word and that you see in his people gathered together who are trying to obediently apply his word? Well, if not, David next outlines the satisfaction of the wicked. And perhaps this will give us a warning we need to adjust our hearts. So let's next next dig into that the satisfaction for the wicked. And we find this in Psalm 17, starting in verse 10. In the immediate context of Psalm 17, David is crying out for justice to be applied to his physical enemies. It is a prayer for justice. But in the midst of that, he lays out a description of his enemies, the wicked. And verse 9, right before verse 10 there, actually discusses this and declares it to be so. He says, my deadly enemies who surround me. And then what does he do to describe them? Let's move into this description here, starting in verse 10. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouth, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Now, the beginning of this sounds familiar and similar to previous descriptions that we've heard of the wicked in the first 15 psalms. They're hard-hearted towards other people. The NASB translates this as they have closed their unfeeling heart to others. They have no empathy. Their mouths speak arrogantly, or as the NASB puts it, they speak proudly. And this is a lifting up of the self as Lord over God and others, and their desire is to devour. And David and the righteous are the ones that they want to devour so that they might be lifted up. And he uses idioms of casting them to the ground and tearing the righteous apart like a young lion. It's a heart of selfishness and greed. The heart of the wicked is so bent on raising him or herself up that they will close themselves off to others, look for the downfall of others, rejoice when it happens, and even act to make it so. Now, obviously, if we see even a portion of these characteristics in our own life, it's a cause for concern, for conviction and repentance, amen? Those places where we look to tear others down so we can build ourselves up. But I would hope in a church full of people who've had their hearts transformed and converted by the Lord that that is probably not the thing that we are consciously going to constantly. Maybe it exists and we're fighting against it, but hopefully we can look at that and go, I would hope that that's not me. But in in light of its connection to the psalm right before it, I want us to focus on the next portion. Because maybe we avoid those, but let's look at verse 14. We'll come back to verse 13 in a minute. Let's look at the description in verse 14. He says, these enemies, these men, these wicked are men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they're satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. Huh? This is where we see what satisfaction for the wicked actually looks like, because this gets back to the core of what we talked about in the introduction to the two paths, a worshiping of something other than God, a worshiping of idolatry. These people that are outlined here are men and women of the world. In the words of James, they are friends with the worldly system around them, which automatically disconnects them from and puts them at enmity with the Lord. Their worldview is not of the Lord, but of this world. Their desires are not of the Lord, but of this world. They are so connected to the finite and so content in this world that they're disconnected from the infinite and the eternal. And the Hebrew gives us even more clarity here. The wooden Hebrew behind this captures the idea that these men and women of this world are called that because their joy, their existence will be found only in this life. They are the walking dead. They are men and women whose reward ends in this existence. Now, obviously, this is in contrast to David in Psalm 16, When the greatest reward, the greatest joy is found in the kingdom to come. In the Messiah, when he reigns and we reign with him. In a a place where we don't see Sheol, we don't see death. There's an eternal mindset and a heavenly mindset. The next item speaks to this clearly. Their portion, it says, is in this life. Contrast this with what we just learned in Psalm 16. Do you remember where the portion of David was found in Psalm 16? Who is his portion? The Lord. The Lord. It was in Yahweh. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. To be in the proper order of creator to creation, there is an acceptance of what God has for you providentially because while it may seem horrible to you, we trust that God will work all things out together for the good of those that are the called and those that love him, for his glory and our good. There is a contentment rather than a rage at God. There is a contentment rather than an entitlement. Now, this in no way diminishes that God gives good in this life through other things. But it is a realization that this life is not all there is. And in fact, it is secondary to eternity. Eternity is the priority in a renewed heaven and earth in relationship with God. Friends, Do you and I live in a way that reflects that? Or do we put aside the things of the Lord in order to suck the marrow out of this existence that we have, thinking this is all we have? Does our existence, does our everyday life reflect actually to the world that this is our priority, not eternity? The description of the wicked continues. Notice the imagery that David uses. It is the picture of offspring and inheritance. Now in our contemporary sensitivities, especially in the evangelical church, this sounds a bit odd to us, does it not? To be included in the description of the wicked. David is painting these things here as negative things. He's saying in God's common grace, he provides the wicked with treasure in their womb, but they are satisfied with their children and leaving their abundance to their infants. They leave their inheritance to their kids. Well, how are these negative things, having babies and leaving your inheritance to them? Looking at certain portions of the evangelical church, one would think that it is the highest work of the Christian. This is why many single folks who aren't married feel so not at home in the church, is because constantly, Preaching is about making the proper family, having the proper look, being financially stable as a family, making sure that you're choosing good entertainment choices for your kids. This is what a lot of evangelicalism is centered around. And then to raise them up, and who cares if they follow Jesus, we need to make them healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, and good members of society. My son doesn't follow the Lord, we say, but oh man, they got this really great deal in life, so I'm really happy for him. Now this is confusing enough because we read this and it shocks us that these would have been seen by bad, as bad at all, but the reason that, or, or part of how people try to explain this is you'll go and you'll find other translations that try and work this, so he's actually breaking off of his train of thought and actually talking about the righteous here. It's actually twisted in some trans- translations. You may even see it in your footnotes. Now we see why this is negative, though, when we contrast it with the statements in Psalm 16 because it's all about priority. There the focus is the Lord, not humanity. His kingdom, not the world. His inheritance, not our own. Friends, why did God give us the institutions of marriage and family? Well, Malachi 2 tells us. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring not spoiled offspring who live their best life now and yet have very little to do with submitting their lives to Christ. You see, when we have a God-centered gospel, all things revolve around his glory. Having children becomes glorious because it is a way to disciple God's children who are given to us for a moment, catechizing them and teaching them to obey the ways of the Lord, discipling them, disciplining them when they are walking in disobedience and giving to them the inheritance of a faith that is centered on Christ. Our satisfaction is then not in our children at all, but in Christ working in the midst of our families and receiving the glory. How many of us would be so pleased with our children if they didn't amount to much in this world, but they followed Jesus with passion? Is that what you're hoping for your child? because the Lord has changed my heart over the years to be absolutely what I'm hoping for. Lord, give them poverty, but give them passion for you, more so than riches without you at all. But so many have made their children into an idol to such an extent that they have forsaken the Lord in the process. Our children's experiences and happiness and making memories with our children become more important than raising them in the admonition of the Lord. Spending quality time with our children, having fun becomes more important than teaching our children and modeling for them what service looks like. Connection with your children's sports community and their school community becomes more important than founding them in their church community. Why? Because that's just more fun. And on and on it goes. Because the experience, the lived experience of our children has become our priority, we have built our youth ministries in church around that idea, and we have become poorer for it. Youth-centered ministry has then leaked its way into the church as a whole, and many churches are simply glorified youth groups for adults, more focused on the worship experience than on the preaching of sin, the need for repentance, and the glorification of Christ in our obedience. The church in America as a whole has become more and more infantile as a result because of the idolatry of kids that is let to exist in the midst of our churches as if it were worshiping Jesus. Now, I focus on this, not because I'm off on some sidetrack here, but because this is the example that's used. All of this is because of the same root that is talked about here. We have found our satisfaction in this world and the things it brings. Even the things, dear friends, that could be classified within the Christian realm as good. Obviously, children are good. Raising them is good, but when they become the priority, they become an idol. It all comes down to what we find satisfaction. And I can remember years ago, as we were growing up and starting, uh, our friends were starting to have kids, we were having trouble with having kids, but all of our friends were having kids, so many of them stopped really participating in the church life at all. And I remember talking to many of them, Oh, well, our kids' bedtime takes priority. Hmm, okay. Well, our kids' sporting events takes priority. Hmm, okay. Friends, where's that trajectory lead? Now, you might say, wow, Hans is really on a tear this morning, guys, guess what I did for five hours yesterday? I sat at a sporting event, and then when I got home, I sat there and sat in conviction writing this because I'm like, man, there's a million things I'd rather do than this. It is the innate sinful rebellion of our hearts to want to find satisfaction in everything else and I speak to you as the chiefest of sinners. The chiefest of sinners. So this comes to you, not as me looking down on you and judging you, if it's hitting home for you, but me going, boy, we need each other's help in pursuing Jesus, amen? Amen. Praise God we have the word to realign our hearts to the truth, Amen? amen? So that in the midst of those things, sporting things aren't bad, do they have the priority? In the midst of those things, discipleship comes. In the midst of confessing our hearts to our kids and saying, no, you're actually not the priority, discipleship comes. Everything becomes realigned to what the truth of the Lord is. He will become our priority and everything else secondary. Now, because this is the example given in our text, I want to clarify. Am I saying that we can't find pleasure in our children or in anything else in this world? Should we become ascetics that live out in the desert and eat dirt? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that all must be based upon the Lord, for it is in Him and His glory that we as Christians will find our greatest satisfaction. Our children, for example, are gifts from God given to us for a time to disciple and build in His ways. And as they grow, Proverbs is correct. Those that follow after the Lord will bring us joy. We will find our joy in the Lord in the midst of our children. And those that will not will bring us sorrow and will bring us shame. And so raise them with the Lord in their lives as king and highest priority, not an idolatry where they are the center of the universe, where God exists to make their life great. Amen? Now, this could be said for anything in this life, not just the example used here. It could be said for our friendships, our spouses, our hobbies, our jobs, our material possessions. If the Lord is at the center of it all, we will see them and interact them through the lens of bringing him glory. Our satisfaction will be found in the Lord, and that will positively impact every one of these aspects in our lives. For example, when we are sitting with a friend who is frustrating us, or maybe it's our spouse or even our child, in our relationships that frustrate us, we will no longer feel entitled to something else. We will give praise to God that in that moment, he's calling us to be sanctified. He's calling us to change into his image and give thanks to him. So this could be said for anything. Our satisfaction will be found in the Lord, and that will positively affect every other part. But we cannot twist scripture to say that simply because we have called ourselves Christian, that the Lord should bring us joy and pleasure in the things of this world rather than in him. Many of us, I know this because I've heard Christians say it, will read verse 10 and verse, or excuse me, verse 11 of chapter 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And many Christians view this as God as if he's the very rich grandparent who you get to sit at their feet and all they do is give you gifts. Of course there's pleasures at your right hand because you get to give them to me because I deserve them. That's how we read that. As if the pleasures are not Christ himself, but the things he gives us. And that's how our hearts pervert these things. But that's a pagan viewpoint. And so we have to constantly fight to keep our heart in line with his truth rather than contort his word to be for our own purposes. We have to keep him central rather than make ourselves central. So then friends, in what do you find satisfaction? Is it in the Lord and the coming kingdom that he is bringing? Is it in the things of the Lord, his word, his people, his commands? Where are we looking to receive our reward? Is it in this life, the riches here and now, relationships here and now, or is it in eternity? Friends, we don't have to look far to understand this is our whole duty. And in this, we will find our fulfillment. Look at Ecclesiastes 12.13. This is the end of the matter, he says. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is what we're made for. But friends, if you're anything like me, you will hear these words and great conviction will set in. For you realize that there is so very much of this life in which we try to find our satisfaction elsewhere. We may even start with the right heart, but then get turned in the midst. In fact, in our postmodern society, the idea of eternity has become so remote That you will hear many preachers talk as if this life is all there is in this way too. We have become practical atheists. This is the way our hearts will innately go. Our hearts will deceive us and want to stay centered in selfishness and self-focus. They want to stay centered on our lordship rather than the lordship of God. And so what we need in the midst of this is a prayer for deliverance. And friends, when we are justified in Christ, that change happens. We become awakened to this truth we've been describing, but the fight doesn't stop there. David's prayer in Psalm 17 is a prayer for rescue from the hands of human enemies. And so he calls out for God's help and God's response. We need to do the same when we're dealing with the warfare we encounter with the enemy of God and the portion of our hearts that still lives as though it exists in allegiance to the kingdom of darkness. And so this, dear brothers and sisters, that David prayers is, uh, prays is a prayer we can and should pray often, and we'll go through it quickly in the last few minutes here. We pray this so that the Lord might rescue us from the lies of the worldly kingdom that invades our hearts. Take a look at 17, verses 6 through 9 and 13. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Look at verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. First David cries for God to show him his steadfast love, and he calls him the Savior of those who seek refuge in him. So from our New Testament perspective, we can cry out for God to remind us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in Christ, we see the perfect, steadfast love of God. In Christ, God the Father has fulfilled his covenant faithfulness by sending his Son to die in our place, pay the penalty for our sin, and resurrect in victory. Without the salvation that these actions brought, we would be forever blinded to our sin, enslaved to the authorities of this world, enslaved to our own lordship, and the kingdom of darkness that has placed us in its bondage. All of Christ's salvific work was brought to save us from that bondage of sin and the bondage of our hearts given over to sin. And secondly, David calls for the Lord's protection as if he were the most sensitive part of the eye that the whole body fights to protect. He calls for the Lord to hide him as a mother hen would hide her chicks. This is the same imagery that Jesus used to call Jerusalem to him as Messiah, he would hide them in his wings. and We can similarly call out to God to protect us from the effects of this world, the lies of our culture, the lies of the enemy, and the lies of our own heart. They surround us, but the Lord will deliver us and protect us amidst a broken world. So friends, when we realize that our heart is turning to this place of idolatry and self-worship, we can cry out in these same ways. And the third thing that we're going to look at here is in verse 13. We see David cry out for the Lord to act, and we can ask the Lord in prayer to act in the same way. Number one, rise up. Number two, confront. Number three, subdue. And number four, rescue. Those are all contained right there in verse 13. Arise, confront, subdue, and rescue. Friends, Christians, this is what we ask God to do every day, but not to our enemies, but to the enemy within and to the enemy that wants to drag us into his lie. First, Lord, rise up from your seat on the throne of judgment and stand in judgment over the lies that lead my heart to find satisfaction in anything other than you. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you to give me the heart that finds satisfaction in you. Bring judgment against me in the things in my life that do not align with that truth. This is the prayer for God to arise. And then pray for God to confront. God, confront me. As I look to your word for truth, as I ask you to confront the idols in my life, please give me a heart of humility to receive that confrontation when it comes, whether from your word or from the spirit that dwells amongst your people. Confront the idolatry in my life. Not only arise and confront, but then bring down and subdue my heart. Brothers and sisters, we must beg the Lord to subdue and conquer our hearts each and every day because it works as an idol factory, and mine is very efficient. I don't know about yours. But it pumps out idols every moment of every day to lead me astray from the Lord. And so, Lord, please destroy the idols. Subdue them. Break them as you find them in my heart. And lastly, we pray, not only to arise and confront and subdue, but also to rescue Like David, we must pray that the Lord would rescue us out of this present world. We do not want to be those that find our satisfaction in this world alone. We don't want to become so blind that we're happy with this finite and temporal happiness that stuff and experiences bring. Friends, while they do have some value, their ultimate value is in the more infinite and lasting value that we find in the glory of Christ. If your experiences out in outdoors are great, that's awesome, but how much better are they when you realize that they come from a glorious God? If your interaction with your kids is fun, awesome, but how much better to realize those are God's kids that he has given into your care for a short period of time? If you enjoy your spouse, awesome. Recognize that they are a fellow co-disciple given to you for the purpose of growing you and having you grow them so that you can both stand in worship of Christ at the last day. Friends, in these things, we find our ultimate value and we find the better value of these finite things. And so we can pray, Lord, rescue us from the false truth of our experience and give us the truth of your word. Arise, confront and subdue and rescue. This morning, friends, these two Psalms of David leave us with a question to ponder this week. In what do I find satisfaction? And in what is my life showing that I find satisfaction? Is it binging a show? Is it entertainment? Is it a certain relationship? Is it work or hobbies or retirement? Is it drugs or alcohol or sex? Is it living for the weekend? Is it summer vacation? All of these may in their proper context be good and valuable things, but they become enslaving idols if placed in a higher priority than Christ and his kingdom. And this is why we must seek the Lord to bring us deliverance from our own hearts which can so easily be led astray in the direction of finding satisfaction in anything else. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Our core satisfaction is in him, and everything else is added. May today be a day where our priorities, mine and yours, ours are reoriented to the glory of God and our spirits given rest to find satisfaction in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and begin finding satisfaction in Christ alone as we prepare our hearts to take communion and speak the gospel truth of his salvation in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us so much to ponder this morning. And while these Psalms in David's moment, in his contemporary time, were definitely speaking to exact situations, Lord, we can take the principles from them and understand that these speak to our hearts, even in 2023. That we want to be like David in Psalm 16, crying out that we have find, found satisfaction in you and you alone. And we know that that is impossible as we've described because our hearts are wicked. And so we thank you for the gift of your Son and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, that through the gospel and through your Spirit, our hearts are realigned to you. And now, Lord, empower us each and every day as we turn to your word and as we turn to you and hold on to your loving kindness. Please change our hearts every moment as they try to turn back to that idolatry. We pray that you do that even now as we step into communion as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.